If the Bible's got you tied in knots, if you're burdened with religious thoughts, come grab a drink and join the choir. It's Heretic Happy Hour. Well, hello, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us for the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. It is time to finish up. We're going to wrap it up. This is our trilogy on the series of, like, what are we calling this? Film series, something like this? Spiritual films, faith films, something, whatever. Anyway, we'll fix it in post. Yes, but uh, before we jump into that, uh, let's introduce ourselves. My name is Keith Giles, um, the author of the Jesus On series, also the brand new, recently released Sola Mysterium, celebrating the beautiful uncertainty of everything. And I am joined by my two co-hosts, Matt and Katie. Say hi. Hi, I'm Katie Valentine. Keith, I found your use of the word trilogy really appropriate for what we're talking mm. about today. Well, there you, trilogy it's a trilogy within a trilogy. And here we are. So I'm, I'm the founder of the Metaphysical Christian Facebook community. I'm the author of Sex, Slavery, and Self-Control. And I'm, I'm ready to talk about this uh, fantastic fantasy movie today. And I'm Matthew J. DeStefano. And I will say this, that there's no such thing as a book trilogy of The Lord of the Rings. It's actually six books contained within three collections, or two, yeah, three collections. So (sighs) to nerd out, it's going to be one of the, hey, I've been dealing with your science fiction bullshit for five (laughs) years. And so I get one episode, all right? So I I am the author of the recently released Learning to Float with my good friend, Michelle Collins. And if you're going to pick up any book this month, pick up that book. If you pick up two, you could pick up Keith's. But if you pick up one, just mine, now let's get into it today. What do we have? What do we have today? <clears throat> well, uh, as you sort of teased there, uh, we are doing the film, although I think technically we are doing the film trilogy because you can't really talk about it and just talk about the one movie. Uh, Lord of the Rings and, and subsequent films. Um, yeah, I just got to say real quick, a little story. When Lord of the Rings, the first film came out, I saw it in the theaters. I'm sitting in the theater and there were these two like teenage boys in front of me and I had to pee so bad. Oh my gosh. I kept thinking, when is this going to end, man? I was dying. Like, okay, this has to be the end, right? And then no, no, it keeps going. And like, okay, this has to be the end. No, it keeps going. Like, oh my God, I'm going to die. And anyway, I'm sitting there trying to make it to the end. And then, then, then finally it ends, right? But it, it ends with them like crossing the river or something, right? And then it ends. And the two teenage boys in front of me look at each other and they're like, that's it? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, uh, yeah, it's a trilogy. And they, it was hilarious just to see their reaction because they were expecting an ending. And I was like, Oh no. Oh, oh no, no, no. There is so much more to go. You have eight hours left. My friend. <laughs> and then I ran to the bathroom. I want to say right off the bat, Matt, you're resistant to every science fiction conversation ever. But yes. like, we're jumping into the fantasy with you. So <laughs> I am not exactly. resistant to the science fiction, but I just, every time that science fiction is discussed, I don't, I, it just goes over my head and I glaze over. I'm not resistant to it. It doesn't feed your soul. I understand. It doesn't. Like I watched Dune and I liked it. I didn't love it, but I liked it. Um, okay. I, you know, I've, I, I try to dabble. I tried, Keith. I tried for the best of me, the, uh, the 2049 Blade. I tried. Yeah. Okay. And right. I failed. But okay. alas. I, it was fun to rewatch Lord of the Rings and I, I, was kind of blown away that this movie is now 20 something years old and that made uh, me feel yeah. archaic. I do feel I'll just old say now. I felt yes. as old as the elves there, but not as, <laughs> not as pretty. Uh, when I, I, will, I, that. I, will, I will say that it actually holds up though pretty I well so for too. being 20 oh, years yeah. old. Completely. Yeah. And I watched the extended version. Of course. That's the only way to do it. So it was fun. Well, Matt, tell us why why you chose the movie. Other than I know you're a super fan of Lord of the Rings, but yeah, what's, what's speaking to that, you? Yes. yes, what's speaking to you about the spiritual spirituality of this particular movie? Uh, nothing in the spirituality. I, I, just a plug for the book that I'm writing. That's all I'm doing this for. No, I'm kidding. Oh, this is an extended commercial. Got it. <laughs> yes, it's an hour long commercial for a book that's not done. I I don't really know exactly what like first got me into Tolkien, but I mean, there's just so many there's so many themes that it's like an onion you peel back. As I know that's cliche, but there's just so many themes that I think are appropriate, and and you know you can't help but make the analogy, or the uh, not the analogy, the comparison between Lewis and Tolkien. You know, right. C.S. Lewis yeah. and Tolkien because they they both wrote fantasy. They were friends. 
Um, they studied together. And I think whereas the reason I don't like Lewis's writings as much is because like, you know, if you compare The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and all the Narnia series, is they're too analogous to the Christian message. Yeah. And though Tolkien was a devout Catholic, you don't find that in Tolkien's work. So Tolkien was he was first, you know, um a linguist and second a mythologist. And then third, he wrote The Lord of the Rings, right? So everything is within this larger mythology that if you found this mythology in the Nag Hammadi caves, you would right. say this is a this is a real <laughs> mythology. He's that good, you know. Yes, yes, yeah. I agree. I have a question: Were you reading or enthused about Lord of the Rings when you were still in the evangelical world? Was that a no-no, or was this kind of after? Um, I would say it was after, but not because of evangelicalism. Like I read The Hobbit, and I, I mean, I read the books and I read the the Lord of the Rings, but it wasn't frowned upon. Like I. Wasn't like Harry Potter or anything, right? With witches and yes. well, yeah, and I think Harry Potter got more popular. Well, no, it was still when I it was popular when I was uh, when I was an evangelical. But yeah, the, for some reason, like the the church I went to, I don't know how it was for y'all, but they weren't really into like denouncing books. Although one of my pastors did get rid of all of his Rob Bell books once Love Wins came out. <laughs> <laughs> Only once Love Wins came out because before that he was like the evangelical darling as we all know, right? So this um, is probably the reason why at my local library, I found a complete set of NUMA videos on DVD for like uh-huh. 25 cents a pop. Yeah, that's probably right. why. Yeah. That's probably why. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you could probably find those in all all local bookstores well, around bookstores, the nation. Yes. Well, yeah. if you found them recently, it's just because you know they're DVDs. That's true. Yeah, true. No one watches them. Yeah. True. Yeah. Yeah, but but no, it wasn't it wasn't frowned upon. And in fact, like um, I think, well, what's interesting is that I th- I believe that it was you know Christians love Lord of the Rings, but I don't think that they quite understand that. Tolkien wouldn't fall into like the evangelical model, though. Though we're not exactly sure because a lot of what Tolkien writes about is not. I mean, it's hard because you don't get a lot of Tolkien's actual beliefs in Lord of the Rings. You get beliefs of his characters, which differ. So that's what yeah. I find interesting. Yeah, he doesn't insert himself into the narrative. His characters have dialogue and have different beliefs. Like there's some elves who have this belief, and there's some elves who have that, and they debate. And dwarves have a different belief, and hobbits are completely non-religious. Uh, so I mean, he doesn't I seem that, to take a side, right? He doesn't no. seem to champion one view over the other, right? Yeah, and they're, they're not mouthpieces for his right. theology right. or anything. His agenda. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And I <laughs> yeah, appreciate that because I think, you know, the, you know, as a true mythologist, he's, he's seen himself as someone who's translating already written books into English. Yeah, yeah. So the yeah. Lord of the Rings is a translation of the Red Book, which is written by hobbits. Mm, that's cool. That's how he sees himself and, and, you know, kind of places himself. Yeah. There are so many layers and I, I'd like for George R. R. Martin to take a cue from this and finish your books. Yes. Your I books. hope he's listening. I hope yes. George, you don't know, yeah, we, know you listen. Know we, we know you listen. We know he is. <laughs> yeah. Well, so the other thing, I think the difference too, it's, it's, I know, I know this isn't to, we're not doing this to compare Lewis and Tolkien, but they were friends, like you said, and they, they had famously some, a lot of debates between each other, between themselves about their approach to fiction. And Tolkien was very critical of Lewis doing these outright obvious allegories, like there's no way you don't notice that Aslan is Jesus, right? There's so many clues. But at the same time, right, Lewis is writing for children and Tolkien is probably not, although I know a lot of young people that read it when they're, when they're junior high, high school age, but he, he's, Tolkien is, I think, writing it more, aiming it more for a more sophisticated audience, right? Well, The Hobbit's kind of a, I wouldn't say a children's book, but juvenile adult. So okay. The Hobbit, the writing style's much different. And even like... That's even the, the intro early... drug. That's the intro drug. That's the, that's the freebie <laughs> yeah, exactly. you get as a kid that pulls exactly. you in as an adult. The gateway but drug. The, even the, the early part of The Fellowship of the Ring is a little bit juvenile compared to some of the later... Um, books and the, just the, the stylistically, it's it's different. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, I've never read the books, um, but we are actually reviewing the film. Yes. We're reviewing the film. Thank yeah. goodness. I, I tried the books. I, I couldn't do it. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to. I want to want to, but I don't. Since this is your film, Matt, tell us. You know what? This uh, is my film. 
and what we're what we're trying to do in this series, right, is kind of pull out spiritual themes and ideas that are uh, interesting to us in the film. So even though Tolkien is not trying to do say anything allegorically, he is still dealing with themes, spiritual themes, the things of redemption and uh, you know the hero, good and evil. He is saying a lot about human nature, right? Mm-hmm. The whole thing with right. the ring, which I, that's the most fascinating thing, is every everybody right. comes to the ring of power with this eye of like, well, but you know, I'll use it for good. Mm. And then it never works out that way. Right. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of those things. So yeah, like you said, because just because it's not allegory does not mean there are not um, things we can compare and contrast to even the Christian story or his time in world war one, you know, so there are a lot of, there's a lot of symbolism and there, there's a lot of those things um, that we can tease out, but we can't draw a one-to-one correspondence unlike Lewis. So, you know, if we're, sp- if we're specifically focusing on the Fellowship of the Ring, which is the first film, you know, we get we get the uh, we get the introduction of hobbits, which Tolkien was a uh, I'll use it loosely an environmentalist in a way, and he compares the the way the hobbits live, though they're not perfect, but he compares them with like Saruman and Isengard and. Uh, uh, so he compares the agrarian lifestyle with the industrialized world. Right. And and so obviously the industrialized world leads to your own ruin, right? Eventually, I mean, it's in the two towers, but one of the towers, you know, gets flooded and basically everyone uh, either dies or is scattered because of their insistence upon using, you know, the world around us for your own gain. And so I think that, you know, that, that ties heavily. I mean, you can tie it into Genesis. You can tie it into how we treat the earth today. And you can see almost in a prophetic way that we as a species have chosen the, the way of Saruman and we're reaping the negative effects of that with climate change, with deforestation, with, you know, all these things that we're having heat wave. We're having a hundred degree weather in Britain right now. And, you know, yeah, and there's so many beautiful themes in it, actually. There's so many beautiful layers to it, which I, is the reason why, obviously, people love the books and, and, uh, and, and the movies. Like, there's also, you know, when you, when you set up this whole thing with the ring being this sort of ring of power and it's, it corrupts people, even, even good people, even Gandalf has a moment, right, where he's almost, like, tempted by it. And then, but then you have Frodo, who just seems to be, I mean, it just, because he isn't as corrupted by it, right? And it's something like he's got a pure heart. He's a pure soul, right? There's this really beautiful picture of him. And, and not as a Christ-like figure, but just as someone who just has a really good heart. And um, and then I, one of my favorite things about the film is that friendship between Sam and Frodo. I mean, that's the most beautiful thing. I mean, it's here's the thing. It's a love story, but it's a love story between Sam and Frodo and their incredible, beautiful friendship. You know, I, I love that. The, I love that the picture of masculinity is much different than the picture of masculinity we in our society generally think of. Right. There's tenderness between the male characters. They sing songs. They write poetry. Yeah. They embrace. They weep. You know, it's not. It's yeah. not this sort of alpha male machismo mm-hmm. sort of character. I mean, though, though they're slaying orcs and things like that, they're also they also cry together and hug together and embrace yeah. and all those sort of things. Yeah, I think you'd even see Aragorn in that light too. I mean, he's obviously the you know right. the, the badass would be king, yeah. but he's also um, he's in love with this elf and like showing expression and emotion to her as well. And he doesn't actually want to be king; he's the reluctant. Yeah, that's the cool thing too. Yeah, king. yeah, he's not the power hungry. Yeah, he's not fighting for the. I don't think. I mean, I didn't watch. I didn't rewatch the second two movies, but he's not trying to fight for his lost throne with this machismo. No. No, he really seems to, like you said, he's very, very reluctant. He doesn't really want it, but I think he sees it as like, he sort of has to take the throne because it's like people need him, right? They, they look to him. There's no one they can look to, you know, for this kind of leadership. I mean, spoiler alert, my favorite, favorite thing is like at the, in the third film when and it was beautiful. It was just so beautiful where, right? It's where after Aragorn is crowned king right and everyone bows to him and then frodo bows and he goes oh no i bow to you and then he bows to him. oh my god that was like so beautiful that was such a beautiful moment 
And so again, you get, yeah, like you say, like you're saying, you get this humility, this affection. Yeah, it's just really, really beautiful. It's a great film. It's a great, I mean, it's a great series of films. So many beautiful themes in it. Well, I was, I was thinking back to the environmentalism and the ecology. And although there's not, I mean, I think you've, you've established that he, he wasn't out to create a, a one-on-one analogy or anything like that. I think all that's really, really true and apparent. Um, but I was thinking, and we, we talked about this a little offline about like, are there kind of Christ figures in there, um, in the story? But, I was I was thinking about with the environmentalism. Um, to me, the story of the resurrection in the New Testament is deeply tied to the earth because Jesus is coming out of um, being enveloped by the earth for the three days. And like I I like to imagine too that the earth is is reanimating, is helping with the resurrection um, of Christ, and like the importance of the body of this physical and corporeal body. Um, and and we see that. I think in the movie too, especially with Gandalf. Right. Who becomes, who goes from Gandalf the Gray to Gandalf the White. Um, and then there's, there's these other kind of pseudo deaths um, in the, in the Lord yeah. of the Rings too. And people are people, hobbits, whoever, whatever, what beings, creatures, I don't know what to call them. Um, characters are restored as well. So I see that ecology as also not some, not, not symbolic. That's not quite the right word, but, tied into this new mm-hmm. life motif. Mm-hmm. But, and it's not like a direct, I don't think it's a direct call out to the New Testament. I think rather the New Testament, Lord of the Rings and other literature are all drawing on this motif. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, w- I wouldn't take it too far and, and make a direct, you know, I think that um, someone like, uh, was it Peter Kreeft as this analysis and Katie, you, you know, brought it to my attention. And I, and I read through it about like, you know, the sacrificial death, resurrection, the savior and all this sort of thing. And I think, I think we can take it too far, but I, I think there's, you know, if you say, well, who is Gandalf? Is Gandalf Jesus or is Frodo Jesus or is Aragorn Christ? And it's like, I think the minute we ask that question is, um, the minute we've missed the point, but there are, I think, I think the theme of death and resurrection is something that obviously influenced Tolkien. But I, I think he would, I think, I think that story, you know, that kind of hero's journey would kind of transcend the Bible, but also be a part of it. So I think it's, I think it's complicated. Yeah, Just I think like they're, told, yeah. they're all participating in it. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I agree. I think it's, uh, it's, we're tempted. People are, you know, you can't help but want to read into it. But yes, you can definitely take it too far. Um, but at the same time, you know, you can really appreciate like especially Gandalf, Frodo, and Aragorn, like they are the sort of the three main heroes of the story. Um, the thing is, though, there's so many heroes or people in the story that are like, that have their moment, you know, that have their heroic moment. Like I absolutely loved in the first film, uh, is it Boromir? I'm going to get the name wrong. Ned Stark. Yes. His death scene is like freaking amazing. Sean Bean, right, plays the character. Yeah. Um, oh my gosh, what a wonderful death scene, right? So because he has his moment of temptation, right? He's trying to get the, the ring away from Frodo. Like he's got that same idea, you know, I want to use it for good. And why would we destroy this thing? You know, and Frodo's running from him. But then when the orcs attack and he's getting hit with these, you know, nonstop onslaught of arrows, he just keeps standing up, keeps getting up, keeps defending them so they can get away. Um, so it's just, even in that, there's this beautiful redemptive moment. And you get all those kind of things in the film, like Gandalf uh, fighting the Balrog, like, oh my gosh, right? He stands there and faces this thing and so they can get away. And and so you, can, you can't help but say, well, okay, that's like Jesus or this is like whatever, you know, um, because these kind, of, these kind of things, they are echoes, right? They, they remind us of like, oh yeah. And the, the problem, like you said, the danger is like trying to make these one-to-one connections like, oh, Gandalf is supposed to be Jesus or... Uh, or whatever, because that's not, we know that that's not what Tolkien was trying to do. And it really even seems on purpose, he's resisting that kind of thing. Like, nope, I'm not going to go there. Right. So a couple of things. Um, Sam is actually the real her- hero of The Lord of the Rings. Oh, I'm sorry. Per, okay. per, per Tolkien. Okay. Um, and he was a gardener, <laughs> so per, per Matt. Um, uh, yeah, exactly. Gardener. The Earth, um, I get it. I saw it coming together. Yeah. But, but to the, uh, so I, I, I like that we, say, who is this kind of like, who does this echo? Who does this rep? But what about how are they different? Because that's where I think we can see that there are, that there aren't analogies. Like, let's just be honest. Frodo ultimately says no to destroying the ring. 
like he gets to the precipice in the cracks of Mount Doom and he says, why, sh- why shouldn't I have it? He does Puts the it same on, thing. turns around. And the only reason it falls in there is because Gollum right. uh, attacks him and then falls in. You know, he's t- as Gandalf he kind of prophesied. Yeah. You know, he's, t- he's directly tied to the fate of the ring, literally, when they both fall in. Um, so there, there are moments where we have to say, unlike Aslan, who is like, <laughs> like it could, it's exactly a one-to-one correspondence, basically, where we, where we get these characters, and they're more archetypal rather than analogous. So they do have their differences. So we can say there are similarities between Frodo and Jesus. We can say there's similarities between Gandalf and Jesus and Aragorn and Jesus, but there's there's vast differences as well. And that's just that's just one of them because, you know, without without Gollum there at the end, what is, you know, I've kind of done this like thought experiment. What does Frodo turn into if he walks down the mountainside and gets away? With Frodo the ring. ends up yeah, yeah, with the ring. Frodo ends Becomes up just Gollum, like right? Gollum. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. There would be no difference Gollum. between him and Gollum in the next couple hundred years. Right. But Gollum, does Gollum become like a Sauron or something? Wait, Gollum becomes like the Christ figure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's no, he dies. <laughs> Gollum takes care of the evil ultimately. Yes, he dies. <laughs> except there's no resurrection. Although that would be an interesting alternate. Let's do it. We should write an Some alternate story fiction. where the ring protects Gollum, but he's horribly scarred and he comes out. He survives. So I will say with the Tolkien estate, be very careful to sell that because you will get scared. <laughs> you know, this, the, I was reflecting on this a bit. Um, I, I tend not to actually love ultimate evil, ultimate good stories. Mm. It's, they, they tend to be a little too easy to me, but this one mm-hmm. I do like, like it's so well done and the, the story is so well crafted, especially within the movies. Uh, I mean, I'm sure within the book too, I just have not been a fan of it, but within the movies, it's so well crafted that I, I, I'm able to let that go. There's all these different layers of it. But this seems to me to be just directly influenced by a very dualistic, um, maybe Western view, particularly Christian, but not not limited only to Christianity, that Tolkien seems to be immersed in and mm-hmm. is oh, reflecting yes. that. Or a European view, right? That Middle Earth is supposed to be Europe of long, long, long ago. Right. And that, and that would be kind of true, yeah. Uh, I'd say, yes, yeah, Sauron pretty much gets as close to the embodiment of evil. Although that's nuanced if you read the Silmarillion. But who's going to do that? But who's going to do that? I did go down a Wikipedia hunt about this <laughs> without having to read. Yeah, Sauron's not not the um, not the ultimate baddie. Melkor is. And even yeah. there's some prophecy about Melkor even being redeemed in some way when, you know, they talk about there's a there's a conversation between an elf and a lady. A lady. Hey lady. Finn is it? It's not Finrod. Oh, you could tell us whatever. I'll believe. Just you. say it is because we'll never know. But okay, yeah, so there's whatever. an elf and a and a and a and a woman, and there is there is talk about a sort of redemption of all of Arda, which is all the created order. Sometimes, I mean, uh, yeah. So Universalism. There's, there's, universalist. Well, no. So we can't say Tolkien is, but we can say the elf might be. Oh yeah. yeah. Okay, got it. Right. So. Yeah, so there's there's also a prophecy from Tom Bombadil who doesn't make it into the films. That's a contentious subject for uh, yes. for Tolkien nerds, but where he has you know a kind of a prophetic statement about a, an ultimate redemption, uh, because even like so the fall there's a fall story just like in the Bible where there's a dissonant melody and that dissonant melody is sung by Melkor, but Melkor doesn't even start bad like Satan. It's like a fallen angel. Like Lucifer, yes. He started off as an angel and then he fell. Yeah. And, but I wouldn't even know, I, I, I don't even know if I would use fallen. It's just, um, it's, yeah. I, I guess fallen is a, is a fine word to use. Corrupted but, fallen. But yeah, yeah but, but, but Sauron does become almost the imbo- dualistic embodiment of evil as you can get. Yeah. Well, I was saying in the films, oh my gosh, the evil is really, really evil. Like that Balrog is like, oh my gosh, dude. Like, Seriously, there were people around me in the theater like praying in tongues and like, <laughs> dear God, in Jesus' name, get away from me. So, you know, there's that. And then um, what's the other one? That, because there's also this fascinating scene. I think it's in this, like, is it Return of the King? Where, I don't remember which one, what the second, what is the second film? The Two Towers, thank you. When, I think that's when it happens. Gandalf sort of basically like performs an exorcism on the king because he's being controlled by Sauron. Like, it's like watching a demonic possession thing. Like it's, it's, it's almost a one-to-one thing. Like he casts 
this thing out of him and then his, the light comes back into his eyes and he's, you know. So yeah, there's, there's lots of these elements where, man, the evil is real and the raids. So man, those raids, every time the raids show up, you know, you're like, I'm, I'm squirming in my chair. Like, you know, they're just, the evil is really, really evil. The films do a really great job of portraying evil as really, really evil. And, um, and so yeah, that dualism, that sort of contrast, yeah, because you have such incredible evil, you need people to be good. You know what I mean? You can, it, it illustrates the fact that without good people, this evil is going to triumph. So it's really beautiful. Yeah. And I'll just say really quickly that the backstory of all those things are what makes it really nuanced. Mm-hmm. So the backstory of the wraiths are that they are former men who had a desire for power. So and they were corrupted. So yeah, it looks really evil, and Jackson does a really good, a really good job of like of us having a visceral response to it. It's mm-hmm. then the backstory that we get where everything gets nuanced. Yeah, on what what is evil, what is the cause of evil, and you know it might not be something we 100 percent agree with. But I, I believe that it does a good job of not just saying, well, this is the ultimate bad thing that's yeah. only bad. And there's maybe a little bit of that, but everything else gets really nuanced. Well, yeah, like like Boromir, you know, Ned Stark himself is a good example of that. He's basically a good man, but he his temptation for corruption is right there. And that's, we can see that within all of us, right? We all have, yeah. right. at least I try, I strive to be good, whatever that means. And I fall down a lot. I mean, Paul talks about that very specifically. You know, I don't, I don't do the things I want to do. And then I do the things I don't want to do as part of right. the, you know, being the human, the human condition or the Hobbit condition or the Elvish condition or yeah. whatever. But back to Tom Bombadil. What's his name? Bombadil. Tom Bombadil. Tom Bombadil. Okay. When I first read the book, I think I made it through Fellowship of the Ring, uh, like twenty years ago. And I, it was just, it's too. There's too many threads in there when I'm reading that I just don't enjoy as a reader. I do enjoy it as a movie watcher. But the Tom Bombadil. When I got to the end of the Tom Bombadil, like eighty page rant, I was like, "What is this book <laughs> doing? What is this book doing?" But then. So I was on this Wikipedia rabbit hole in the middle of the night last night because I had I woke up at 3.30 and thought, oh, I'll finish the movie now. And then I went on this Wikipedia rabbit hole. And so with the whole Christ figure things, which you know, I think we've, we've, we've sort of established is, you know, obviously it's not a one-to-one analogy, but then people were like, actually, it's Tom Bombadil. He's not corrupted by the ring. He, he, he can hold it. He's True. like, oh, whatever. And like, he's this agrarian guy hopping around in the woods, which is exactly what I hated as a reader. <laughs> so I like that the main characters might actually be, not the main characters, but the, the main like good guys in the book might be Sam and Tom Bombadil uh, all to begin with. Yeah, the problem with, yeah, Tom Bombadil is a complete enigma. Like, the, you know, so they, he asks, um, I think Frodo, and this is going to the book, obviously, Frodo asks, Lady Goldberry, which is Tom Bombadil's, you know, spouse or whatever. Who is Tom Bombadil? And she goes, well, he is. So it's kind of like that I am that I am sort of thing. It's like, instead of, but he never asks, what is Tom Bombadil? But as, as Elrond, you know, says in the council, like the re, or maybe Gandalf said it, I can't remember. You, you, we can't really trust Tom Bombadil because he's just so uh, forgetful. Like he's just going to put the ring down somewhere. So, so he's, not, he's not exactly <laughs> like trustworthy there. Yeah, he's yeah, I mean, yes, he's, he he puts the ring on. He doesn't disappear, which you know everyone else does. And he take, takes it off, and he's just like whatever. It doesn't have any effect on him. The problem is that he's just he's not concerned with anything except for outside of his little the old forest outside of the Shire. He has no concern for you know the doings of what's going on out there. Social justice work is not in his vocabulary. Yeah, so in that it's way, he would be fellowship. very much not like Jesus, like. You know, Jesus was all about, you know, justice to his people and things like that. And Tom's just like, I don't give a shit. Like, I'm just here. I'm just here picking flowers for my lady. He's a merry man. Yes. Yeah. But this yeah. is the point where the book, though, I, I will say completely lost me. And that's, yeah. That, I was like, we just went on this foray with this man. And now he's going to, uh, nah, I just, <laughs> it's too much for me. And and I think that's the reason he gets cut from the film, because it yeah. actually doesn't progress the, like, the story. I mean, you have to yeah. cut something right. from, from a movie that long. Or from a from a book that long and that you know kind of meandering and so it it makes sense as a you know in the in the books it's you know Frodo comes across the ring and then leaves seventeen years later you can't film that right so you have to get Frodo to Rivendell and pass like within the matter of like a week or two for it to make sense and so it makes sense to cut out certain things and Tom was one of them 
Yeah, I, I wanted to go back to something that Katie had said that I thought was really fascinating. Um, and I think it's one of the things that, that uh, sets the film apart um, from the, it's the way it handles evil. We, you know, I just talked about how like the evil is really evil and all that. So it kind of calls to even the, the, the necessity for good to overcome it. And, um, but it's, but the way it handles evil, like I really appreciate the nuance, yeah, as we were saying, Matt, because yes, you know, you see that, um, like the wraiths, right, are evil. But again, you know that even in the film, they give you the backstory that, well, these were kings that were corrupted. Boromir, right? Oh, yeah, he has his moment. But in other words, like, there's sympathy for everyone who sort of gives in to this, to this nature, because I think it recognized the film recognizes the books, I'm assuming, but also recognize that the potential for this is in all of us. The potential for great good and great evil is, with, is within all of us. Some people have fallen, have, have, you know, slipped into this, made the mistake, weren't strong enough or whatever. And this is why they have these weaknesses. This is why, this is why the king is possessed. This is why Gollum is the way he is. This is, you know, like, so all of the characters that you might look at and say, oh, this is the bad guy, or these are evil. These are the, you know, they're, they're on the side of darkness. But there is, there is still this sort of sympathy for each of them. There is a reason to have sympathy for each one of them and see the humanity in even, uh, maybe not all of them, because again, in the, at least in the film, I, I have no, I, I didn't detect any of that for Saruman, but I certainly do see it for almost all the other characters. And I appreciate that. I think that's really great because it doesn't, doesn't, it, it prevents it from becoming a cartoon, right? Where it's just like, ha, 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 I'll kill you. You know, it's not like that. It's not these cheesy cardboard one dimensional. Um, you get this humanity behind the tragedy behind, right? This broken humanity that these people have been twisted by their own inner desires and, uh, things like that. And so I, yeah, I really like that about the film and the way it treats that. Well, and I think it's explicit about, you know, what, what exactly what you're saying. It's, it's pity that saves Gollum from Bilbo. And then it's pity when Frodo has pity on and Gollum and sees, I mean, Gollum was Smeagol and Smeagol was a hobbit. And there, you know, but for I the think, grace of God, go, go yeah, straight there, up. I think, I think Bilbo and Frodo both realize that. And it's actually that pity uh, and mercy is what actually is like the deciding factor on what uh, destroys the ring. Yeah. And in fact, uh, you can make the case that you said good overcomes the evil. You can actually make the case that evil is such in Tolkien's world that it destroys itself. Right. There you go. And, yes. that, and that it's not, it's not good that actually overcomes it. It's, it's evil draws the ring to itself and in turn destroys, destroys itself, itself. Mm-hmm. It, because the only place, the only place that, uh, the ring can be destroyed is in Mount Doom. And it, it's like, you know, we have this, the ring is always trying to get home though, to its master. And so it's almost like, does Frodo's goodness will it there? Or, I mean, that, that you can make the case. Or is it the ring drawing itself? One way where, or the other, it was going yeah, to so it's, get, so it's like yeah. this, this debate, you know, between I think what Boteanism and philosophy and Manichaeism um, mm-hmm. on what the nature of evil is and how it actually is destroyed. And, you know, there's, you know, Tolkien, again, being the good mythologist, doesn't give us an answer, and which is why we discuss it years and years later. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, I think another part, the, the flip side of that, that I really appreciate in the, just in the story overall book movie, is that good more or less wins the day. Mm-hmm. But life isn't perfect for everyone. It's not... No. It doesn't create a utopia. No. Right. Uh, for the characters. And so I think the movie gives everyone a slightly happier ending than the books do from my understanding, where there's, there's a little inertia, like, like the elves, it's not like the elves kingdom is restored. They still have to leave no, and go to their, yeah, yeah, to their after, I don't know, it's not an afterlife. I'm not quite sure what it is, an island or well, something. It's, or, yeah. I mean, it's the undying lands the where, undying you lands. know, so they would live forever. Sure. Yeah. yeah, and but and like Frodo goes there too for a time. Bilbo Baggins goes there for a time, but the I well, think the Shire for, gets yeah. somewhat just less idyllic. Yeah. So in the in the books, the Shire Saruman. Uh, spoiler alert for those who haven't read the books, which came out like 60, 70 years later. So that's on you. Saruman does not die in the two towers. Um, he and Grima actually le- eventually. Uh, you know, uh, Treebeard is guarding them 
at Orthanc at the tower. He forgets, and then, and then they leave and they go to the Shire and they essentially destroy the Shire. Basically, uh, they they industrialize the Shire, and then Mary Pippin, Frodo, and Sam have to you know uh, rally the hobbits and drive them out, and that's where Saruman and Grima are killed. Um, so it's yeah, it's a very different. And, and and it's not a ha- I mean it's a happy ending in some way, but it's not in another way because yeah, Frodo it's bittersweet. Frodo leaves never to return. Uh, Bilbo leaves never to return. Eventually, Sam, you know, well after the events of the movie, after his wife dies, he goes because he was a ring bearer. Goes to the uh, to the west with the elves. And so you're right; it's not utopian at all by any by any stretch of the imagination. Um, there's peace after it with Aragorn as the king of Gondor and the Shire eventually gets restored and Sam replants all the trees being the good gardener he is. Um, but it's totally bittersweet and it, all the nine endings of the return of the king. <laughs> yeah, I just find it very true to life. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, yeah. All right, so I didn't know this part because it's not in the movie, right? Where uh, Saruman goes to the Shire and industrializes the Shire, right? right. So is he like right. a, So he's a job creator. Hey, hey. So job, the unemployment goes yeah, down. Unemployment goes way down. Yeah. Production goes up. Wages are up. Wages are up. up. Yeah. Yep. I mean, yep. yeah. So <laughs> it's just where orcs start to be made. Is it in the Shire eventually? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they, they build a wall. Yeah. They build a, they they, build a they great build wall. wall. It's a beautiful to wall. Keep, to keep the Mexican hobbits out. And, uh, and yeah. Gondor paid for it. <laughs> I did. I wrote a couple of satire pieces yeah. where that kind of stuff happens, and it's, it's pretty good. Yeah. Well, the Great Wall around the Shire, Gondor is going to pay for it. Yeah. Well, I want to um, highlight something that Keith said off air as we were kind of doing a little bit of prep work last last week. Um, and Keith was like, "Why don't the Eagles just fly everyone to flipping Mount Doom?" <laughs> and when I was re when I was rewatching it, that's all I could think of. Gandalf and Sauron are on that tower, which gave me right. Rodrigo. And the eagle comes and picks him up. I'm like, why don't they, why don't they just go and get the ring and drop, and drop it off? But I understand the quest is important and all that. And um, but I was actually thinking, you know, eagles in the in this world seem very um, intelligent and and of their own free will. So I was also kind of thinking that theme of free will, how important that is in this mythology, and that. Of the Fellowship of the Ring, right? That's the whole movie. They're they're all volunteers, basically. They're un, they're unpaid. <laughs> yeah. yeah, volunteering for this very dangerous quest. <laughs> and the eagles actually speak in the books and things like that. So they're more, you know, they they do have their own free will. And, that, and there's there's a balance in the discussion about what fate and free will in Tolkien's world, because there are statements about the god figure foreseeing the end. You know, have, so it's all fated to be. But it, it's pretty explicit also that you know, by your own free choice, you, you, you decide these things. And, um, there's the theory, and I don't know how much weight there is that when Gandalf's on the precipice of falling down with the Balrog, he says, fly you fools, not meaning like fly your ass out of here, meaning literally fly to Mordor with the Eagles. I don't know how much weight we should give that, but there's also the funny meme of like Tolkien being asked the same thing. And he says, because shut up. (laughs) <laughs> Meaning, don't even ask the stupid questions. Because shut up, I don't want them to. Well, in my in my Wikipedia, just complete rabbit hole too. Um, I was I was exploring some of the mythology from like Cimmerillon, and so so who Gandalf is because we we just see him as a wizard, as a, as a kind of magical yeah. man. Mm-hmm. But so yeah. Matt, you can you can fill in the gaps a little bit. But like basically, he's he's analogous kind of to a what well, to a Christian angel or to Judeo Christian angel, mm. kind of. I did, not also, I did not understand. You know, yeah, in the movie, I don't uh, think yeah. it really comes through that much. But like in the mythology behind, I just found it fascinating, and that he's like of a created order that sometimes inhabit bodies. Those right. sometimes will take on corporeal form, what? yeah, right. to come to Earth. And like not everyone does, right. but he's one of a few that does that, and that they have choices. And sometimes they also become corrupted. They, they're they're supposed to be good, but sometimes they also become evil. And I found that fascinating. And believe me, my woo woo metaphysical brain was on flipping fire, and I had a lot of fun with it. I'm sure. You, yeah, Gandalf and Saruman are are part of. Uh, there's five wizards that we know of. There's like two blue wizards who go to the east that we know nothing nothing of. Then there's Radagast the Brown. He's in The Hobbit. And then Saruman and, and Gandalf. Gandalf would be closer in kind to the Balrog 
in fact, would be of the same order than Aragorn. That's okay, no, you, dude, so, that's so, crazy. So a part of the battle, a part of the battle is that Gandalf has to face like this evil version of what Gandalf is. So he's been incarnated as Gandalf the Grey and then Gandalf the White. So Gandalf does die, and then he is reincarnated, reincarnated. if you will. In, yeah, into the same basically looking body, but as the white. But who Gandalf is, is not just like in the in the body, right? No, so we read and research so you don't have to. It's right here. We've done That's all the hard right. work. But this is We've actually like a really great lesson in redaction criticism. Like you can apply this kind of to the, the way the stories are in the, in the Bible or, or other, um, you know, any kind of text, right? We have the surface of the story, like we're exploring the movie. But we can't only explore the movie. We're also exploring the world behind the movie and all the sources that go into the movie and into the right, all these different layers. And so I find like when we can apply that to the, to the biblical story, the biblical world, it becomes, to me, it becomes much richer. It becomes really, really mm. a helpful oh, analysis. Yeah. So I actually kind of like this mode of analysis because it's very much how I approach the biblical text as well. That's, that's a good, that's a good point because we, we don't, I think I, <laughs> to use an analogy, I think most Christians apply, approach the Bible in the way most fans of of movies just approach the Lord of the Rings films. They watch the films, they're great. But then they don't go behind the scenes to read the Silmarillion or the unfinished tales or or, or you know the you know the history of Middle-earth. And there's those of us who are total nerds who do that and I think it it does make it much richer. Uh, much more alive. Yeah, I agree. I think um, it's fascinating to me to think about, like you you alluded to this uh, at the beginning, Matt, like what if, you know, there's a great, so so there's some cataclysm, right? Society collapses and falls apart. And like uh, 500 years from now or something, uh, someone digs open uh, a jar buried in the sand and they find a copy of the Lord of the Rings and they read it and they're like, oh my gosh, this really happened. This is real. There was this guy named Gandalf. There was this Frodo. There was a ring. Oh my gosh, right? You know what I mean? Like, because it is so, like you said, it's so well written. There's so many de- depth, so much depth and layers to it. It's the kind of thing that somebody could find some in some future, you know, with no connection to its origin and read it as if, wow, these scrolls are telling us something about, you know, good and evil and, and these uh, gods and demigods and angels and demons and stuff like, I don't know, that's really, really, really fascinating to me. Archaeological digs will start looking for Aragorn's tomb. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> we must find the sword that was reforged. Yes, we must find um, it. Yes. And, and if you found, if you found his languages too, which is part of the genius of Tolkien, oh, yeah. they his, are his like language. working, working languages that Do can you evolve speak Elvis, with time. Matt? Hell no. No, I'm not that much of a nerd. I, I'm curious. Klingon. No, I can't even like continue to speak the languages like Spanish that I used to speak. I don't, I don't have the time or the That's desire. Fair. That's fair. Yeah. We'll, we'll give you a pass on the, on the Elvish language. Test give for me now. a pass on learning Elvish. I'm more, I'm like Tolkien. I'm a, I'm a hobbit in all but size. I'm not really an elf. If I had to live in one locale, I'd be the Shire, not Rivendell. What about you all? Oh, I totally live in Rivendell. Yeah, I could see that. That's my favorite part of the Keith movie. would be in Mordor. Yo, yeah, <clears throat> no, no, it's too high. You're in El Paso. What are you talking about? That's why I don't want to live there. No, it's, it's hot <laughs> enough here. I think I am. I feel sometimes I feel like I live right outside Mount Doom. Uh, Likewise. <laughs> yeah, uh, I also think, and I, we haven't talked about this. I also think it's interesting, and actually, it's really funny. We made it this far, and no one has said anything about this. But it's also interesting to me how blatantly Tolkien puts pot in the story. Don't they all smoke weed? <laughs> they smoke pipe weed, which is actually tobacco. Tobacco. Oh, I come want on. it to be weed really bad, no, but now I they, grow, I, I think it's, they grow tobacco. I, I do love it that tobacco. tobacco could be grown, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago. I think it's pot, Middle Earth. personally. Well, I, I like to pretend that it, they're just smoking weed. But, that's that's um, how, that's honestly when I was watching the film, that's what I thought they were doing. I thought, oh, they're smoking yeah. pot. They all enjoy yeah. good beer, which I appreciate. Yeah, I I pretend that it's that it's weed, but no, based on my research, it's tobacco. But I just gloss that over and say it's just weed. Let's just say it's herbs. 
herbs. Yeah, I, herbs. I also like the go. second the second breakfast. Um, I'm a I fan. That, mm-hmm. Yes, I think that, I, I I was like, hey, I do that anyway. So I just, yeah, I, I can start second breakfast with Matt, and you can have second cup of tea. <laughs> there you go. Second breakfast with Matt. Yes. Well, any any other takeaways from the films? Did I? Did, we didn't nerd out too deeply, did we? I think no. we went there and then to the appropriate level. We went there and back again to the <laughs> to the appropriate redactional level. Uh, excellent choice. Well, I had I had if we're going to pick movies, I had to pick it. I know we went obscure last week that no one you know the cult a cult following, but but that's cult too though. Right? We're going to bring things to people's attention that they would not otherwise know about, right? For education, yeah, I can't wait to see who who watches the part two of the man from earth as well. So, but we've, you know, every, every movie I was thinking about, it has been, um, really earthy. Um, like mm-hmm. I felt like Mary Magdalene was like, there's all that water imagery, like Lord of the Rings, obviously what we talked about today, the man from earth is <laughs> it's in the earth. title, right? It's in the title. And if you want, if anyone does watch the sequel, you'll see even more, um, how that's true. And I was thinking every, um, Mary Magdalene didn't quite have the gender problems, but it doesn't quite pass the Bechdel test either. Um, and there were, I think there were some gender problems in The Man from Earth, and I think there's some gender problems in Lord of the Rings, and there's like racial, like a lot of white people in all three movies. Yeah, that's true. As well, just a lot of white people. So it'd be kind of interesting if we ever do a part two to be um, kind of like find the other side of the coin. Oh, yeah, that'd be fun. On all those things, yeah. I, I'd be willing yeah. to do another film series one, yeah. It's one thing I wish that there was more representation in in the films. Um. I don't think representation was that important or as important when Tolkien wrote The Lord of the Rings, but it's super important now, which is actually one... I, I like that they've moved past. And so this upcoming series, The Rings of Power, I'm cautiously optimistic. I you know If it falls flat, I wouldn't be that surprised, but I'm glad there's more representation there. Yeah, I did notice that in the trailer for that. Yeah, there was a, they, were, they were going out of their way to have good representation. Yeah. And so yeah. generally, I would be put off by taking things out of canon, but I like that portion. Like Normally, when you add things for not in canon, you, you kind of fuck it up. You, you, you go against what the author would ever do, but... I like the I like that avenue that they're taking. I hope they don't fuck everything else up, but we'll see. Well, I was re- I was I did read a little bit about like rate like uh, accusations of racism in Lord of the Rings in, in the book actually. Like he was accused of that back in the 50s, 60s, and uh, apparently Tolkien himself was just staunchly anti-racist. But the was, uh, right. Middle Earth is polycultural, mm-hmm. but is still filled with a lot of white people, and like the right. um, the evil ones tend to be characterized as like dark. Right. And using light, dark imagery. So, you know, I think like there's right. certainly a work of its time. Um, but I found it interesting that yeah. people were actually critiquing it then, which I was shocked. Yeah. And that was interesting yeah. to me. And, that- and, and there's fair points that some, some of the parts of the text are problematic. And I think we also have, we also have the tendency to, to read authors or whatever, or characters from the past into our time now. So like Tolkien would have not much knowledge or experience of like racism in America. He's not American. So yeah, we'd have to be careful not to like say, oh, it's problematic because here in America, it's like, well, Tolkien has nothing to do with America. Like he's, he's British and, and uh, well, South African British. Yeah, but it, there are, there are points to be made that there, you know, there are problematic parts in there. I don't, I don't think Tolkien was racist at all. But I think there's probably some blind spots in the text itself. Yeah, blind spots is I think strikes me as correct. So yeah, so y'all let us listeners let us know if you like the film series and uh, yeah, I don't know that yeah. we'll take your suggestions for movies, but send them in. Oh, we're interested because we'll consider it. We'll we're consider sure. it. Yeah. Well, you, so yeah. Your, your, your statement, Katie, made me start to think like uh, films that I films that I really love that that have spiritual themes. Like, you know, are they? Are they inclusive or are they, you know, um, or, or can I think of any that would kind of be appropriate for a series where we incorporated more of the films that address those kinds of things? And I can think of a couple, but it's funny. I, I, not, not a lot, but yeah, down the road, we'll do another. All of our Christ figures were real white too. So we'll, we'll do, we'll, we'll take that into consideration next time. Not from Black Jesus. Have you guys seen Black Jesus? It's hilarious. <laughs> Where's Derek when I need him? I know I know Derek knows Black Jesus. Is it a movie 
Or is it no, like it's a, a, it's a, it's a series? I think no, no, it's a series. I, I don't remember on what, but I think it got canceled. Wow! Surprise, surprise. Black Jesus, that's, that's unfascinating. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, be, uh, before we wrap up here, uh, well, huge changes. Yeah. We'll just say this: I don't want to spoil anything, but this is the last episode of the Heretic Happy Hour that's going to look like this. And I don't, I don't know if I want to say much more than that yet. Well, one thing I do want to say: one thing. I hope this isn't giving away too much, but we are going to have to add an extra chair. Just put it that way. We're going to make more room in the studio. At least, at least an extra chair. Yeah, we more. We make more room here in the Heritage Cappy Hour studio. So actually, Barrett might have to stand because we're going to need his chair. I thought he's been standing in the corner. Um, does he stand or does he sit? I, I thought he was on a chair, but in my imagination. He, yeah, he comes live every single episode to play and sing that song. And then he just leaves. Yes. And then he around. I'll be he back. Say shit. Holds, yeah. holds up posters for us to read with notes and critiques yeah. of what yeah. we're saying. Thanks, Barrett. Yeah, yeah it'll, it, it's going to be a fun episode next time. So I'll tune yeah. back in in two weeks. Oh my gosh. Things will never be the same. Yeah, you're going to have to listen. It's going to be so good. Heretic Happy Hour 3.0 is going to blow your mind. In a good way. In a, in a good way. So right. before we wrap, head on over to heretichappyhour.com. Stay up to date with everything. There's big changes, folks. So uh, the site is a little bit behind, but we're working on it. So bear with us. But there are still all the books that you could ever want on there from former Heretics of the Week. We have swag. We have hats. We have shirts. Heretichappyhour.com. Check it out. We, uh, we also have a free Facebook group. I don't know if anyone knew that. So this is pop quiz time. What is the name of our free Facebook group? If you answered Heresy After Hours, you get an A+. If you didn't answer Heresy After Hours, um, you need to go on your quest and get your ring, your ring of good, and come on over and share it with us. Uh, so just type into your Facebook bar, Heresy After Hours, join the group. We have a couple of thousand people in there. You'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll share memes, and uh, we'll we'll share all your pictures of your one ring of power too. Yes. and. Um... We want to also say a huge thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon. Thank you so much for your support. We love being able to give you extra bonus content over on the patreon.com slash heretic happy hour page. And um, if you don't yet support us, please, please consider going over there and uh, being becoming a supporter. You will unlock probably dozens, possibly hundreds. I don't know the actual count, but many, 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 many cool things over there. I think it's about, it's about 200. About there you go. There you go. So over 200, uh, at least 200, uh, like really cool, you know, lots of content, lots of cool stuff. And you will get access to our exclusive private Heretic Happy Hour Facebook group called the Heretic Happy Hour Facebook group. Uh, so yeah, thank you all so much for supporting us. If you don't support us yet, please do. And uh, yeah. And I want to say too, real quick, a plug. We have some amazing t-shirts. I know you mentioned shirts, but if you have not gone over to the website, com and look at the store. We have hats and shirts and so much coffee mugs, so much cool stuff. You got to check it out and, and just pick up something. You're going to, you, you, you'll have to pick up something. I know because it's so, so, there's so much great stuff over there. That's right. And make sure you rate and review on iTunes. Please do, do it now. If you don't, Sauron wins. Sauron will haunt your dreams. Yes. Forever. You'll and see ever. that big vaginal eye. You will see it. His, his eye will be upon you. Wait, You're not wrong, right? What? It, You're not I'm wrong. Not incorrect. You're not. You're not wrong. <laughs>